chapter 5, Galatians chapter 5. Um, there's an outline in your bulletin uh, for this morning. And today I'm going to tackle one of the big topics that really um, has some uh, crushing effects upon the, the hearts and the lives of God's people and as well as those who are not followers of Jesus Christ, and that is the issue of suffering. All right, so uh, all throughout the Bible, we hear this call, do not lose heart, do not lose heart, do not lose heart. And most of the time when we are tempted to lose heart or to set our faith aside is probably in a time in our lives in which there is some kind of an intense pain or suffering that is happening. And so uh, nothing, I think, causes you to lose heart like suffering. But on the other hand, uh, nothing really drives you deeper into the heart of God like suffering. So it doesn't matter which avenue you're traveling, the ultimate question is always asked, the big question of the day is, if God is all good and if God is all powerful, then why does he allow evil and suffering to exist? Why does he allow that? Now, for some of you, the answer um, to that question, the question itself bothers you, right? Because there's been a time maybe in your life and your faith walk with God in which you were asking that question because of something that happened. So, Uh, This is not an academic question uh, that we're going to roll out in a classroom. This becomes very personal, right? It becomes very personal, and it probably became personal in your life way back when you were a child. Uh, You may have grown up in a home in which you had a parent who was an alcoholic, so you understood the ramifications of that. Uh, Maybe your father was an alcoholic, and he was just a mean person, right? And you never knew what you were going to get when you walked in the house. You're walking on eggshells all the time. You never knew how he was going to respond to things. And so you grew up in a home that was just constantly filled with turmoil all, all the time. Uh, or maybe um, when you were growing up, one of your parents died, and you blamed God. And you said, God, why, why, why did this happen? I mean, uh, it wasn't my parent. It was my grandmother. My grandparents helped raise me, and I was very, very close to my grandparents on my mother's side. And when my grandmother died when I was in elementary school, uh, that was the question I had was, you know, Lord, why, why? And I didn't know anything about God much, but I, I, I was told there's a God up there. And so I was asking questions, well, why did she die? What happens afterwards? And my family who are not believers, they didn't have any real solid answers for me other than things like people try to say to console you, like, well, you know, God needed another angel in heaven or God needed her more, you know, those kinds of things that are absolutely of no help and are useless uh, to someone who is seeking answers for questions that they're asking. Um, and so some of you, maybe um, you just never forgave God for that. And for some of you, maybe it's a series of losses. It may have been like a, a, the loss of a home, the loss of a job, economic losses, the loss of a marriage, the loss of a child. Um, I, I will never, ever forget uh, the absolute um, howlness, numbness, and aching that went on in my mother's heart when my sister was killed at age 20. I was 18 years old at the time. And so um, that's, that's, that's a big, huge suffering issue that she faced. And she wasn't a follower of Jesus. She wasn't a believer in Jesus. And so she was trying to tackle this on her own and try to make sense of life. And so questions are going to... I don't know what it is for you. Uh, maybe you were abused in some way. It might have been physical abuse. Uh, it might have been emotional abuse. Maybe you were raped. Uh, we, I, we know many, I know many, many people, they've gone through those avenues, those channels. There have been a lot of things in my life that created tremendous amounts of pain and suffering. And so I would have asked those same questions that you want to ask, 
And it's like, God, if you are all loving and good, then why, why does this evil and suffering continue to persist? Why do you not put an end to it? And so philosophers have debated this issue over a thousand years about the answers to this. But here's one of the things I've come to conclude is that often our personal pain motivates our personal convictions. Like my convictions about God, my convictions about life, my convictions about a lot of things can roll out of my personal pain rather than really what what God wants to say about it. And out of that personal pain, we begin demanding that God give us answers to our questions. So we have a lot of why questions when it comes to pain and suffering, especially when it's personal, and we demand that God give us the answers to those questions, and oftentimes, more often than not, God is not going to respond to that why question. So what I want to do today is kind of give us a broad perspective as to why there's evil and suffering in the world. It is temporary. It's not an eternal thing. And then I want to kind of narrow it down to our own personal lives. And so we're going to find this in Galatians chapter 5, where really Paul kind of deals with this issue, especially our personal lives, because through a personal experience and 35 years of observation as a pastor, most of the pain and suffering you're going to experience in this lifetime is going to come at the hands of somebody else. All right, somebody else is going to say something, do something, treat you in a certain way, or you have brought it on yourself, although you may not want to acknowledge that. All right, so if I get up and I choose to, you know what, I just think I'm going to, uh, you know, get back into drugs and I, I, you know, start doing drugs again and you guys find out about it and you fire me from my job and then I lose my home and all this. I can't blame God for that, right? That's my own personal responsibility. It is the consequences of my own personal choices in life. And a lot of times the suffering that we encounter in life, it comes as the result of the consequence of our own personal decisions although we look for a scapegoat, somebody to blame, so we don't have to take responsibility, and therefore it's very easy to blame God or to blame somebody else. God is not causing evil and suffering. He certainly set up the scenario where it could happen, and we'll talk about this in a moment, about freedom uh, that God gave us, the freedom to choose, uh, but it it does have an expiration date. And um, so, God does tolerate it for a moment, but only for a moment. So let me give you a broad perspective to kind of set the stage for uh, what Paul uh, is going to speak to our hearts about when it comes to personal suffering. Here's the broad perspective. First of all, the reality of the unseen realm. The reality of the unseen realm. Now, you are a person who has two parts, right? You have a physical body uh, that is a part of the material world in which we live but you also have an invisible part. Your spirit, your soul is the invisible, immaterial part of your your existence. And so when God created you, the Bible says he created you in his image. He is Father, Son, Holy Spirit, one God in one essence. You are spirit, soul, and body, one person in one essence. So there is the visible part of you, and then there is the invisible part, right? So the realm of the material, and the realm of the spiritual. Well, God lives in both realms, right? So he exists in both realms. The spirit, we were designed that the spirit would influence the soul, which is your mind, will, and emotions that would ultimately impact the body or and what we do. And so the Bible says that God made us 
to love us with, with all of our parts. So we live in this natural world. We see the physical world, but there is another world that is just as connected to us as the real visible world in which we live, which is the invisible, immaterial world, the spiritual world. We have a kind of a dual existence, and God exists in both realms, right? God moves and has his being in both of those realms. It's very important to understand that because everything you see being played out in the physical, natural realm of things is simply um, a picture of what is being played out in the invisible spiritual realm. In other words, what goes on in the heavenlies is being played out here on the earth. So if you want to fix what is on the earth, you must first fix the spiritual realm. So if we deal with problems in society, for example, if you want to get people, you know, not having hearts that are bent towards evil things and painful things and like jealousy and envy and hatred and unforgiveness and all the other things that come along with, with a heart that is bent towards those, those activities, you must feel, first deal with the internal, immaterial part of them, their spirit, their soul. So the Bible says when we came into the world, we came into the world spiritually dead, right? So when Adam and Eve sinned, the day they sinned, God said, you will die. They died immediately in their spirit, progressively in their soul, their mind, will, and emotions, ultimately in their body. So if you want to fix what's going on outside of you, you've got to first fix what's going on inside of you. You want to fix society, and this is why the gospel is the power of God unto salvation, is because it's the gospel that begins to fix people from the inside out. You, you can change the environment in which people live, and they might make some cosmetic adjustments, but until you fix the human heart, you've not addressed the human problem. And so this is the world in which we live. What the Bible tells us is that in heaven, there was nothing but unity and love and joy and worship and deference to authority until there was a cosmic rebellion. That cosmic rebellion was that Satan, out of pride, looked at God's throne and he coveted the throne of God. And so Satan brought along with him those who would side in rebellion against God and there was a war that began to take place in heaven. And so the angelic beings of God began to war against Satan and the demonic beings. And watch this. And what God did is that he pushed Satan out of heaven down to the earth. And so what happens is now the, the war has come to us. The battle has already been won. God has already removed Satan from the heavenlies down to earth. And so I'm going to talk about a concept of hell up and heaven down, because this is what, Jane, or what Paul is going to talk about in Galatians. So every person that's born into this world is born into this battle. My grandchildren who have been born into this world have been born, have given birth into this battle. They don't know it yet. They're not equipped for it yet. But as a grandparent, I certainly want to do everything in my power to help make them aware of it and equip them for it so that they can walk victoriously through it. All right, so here's why this is important. Because love requires freedom. So when God created us in love, out of love, it required giving us the freedom to choose. All the angelic beings were given the same opportunity. 
They were, they were created out of love, the love of God, and therefore they were given the capacity to choose, the freedom to do right or to do wrong. And love only works where there's freedom. And some of your pain in life came because, well, I loved her, but she didn't love me back. I gave her my heart, and she stomped all over it, right? So, you know, I'm still in therapy over that. It's okay. Here's why this is important. Listen, um, freedom has a shadow side. If you're free to love, you're free to hate. If you're free to give, you're free to take. If you're free to, for the capacity to do good, you are free for the capacity to do evil. That's what freedom does. What happens is that ultimately is that God is in his divine family of the angelic beings, defeated Satan and his demons, and again, pushed them out of heaven. And there's going to come the day when Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. And there is this war on heaven now on earth. And everybody's born into that world just as Adam and Eve were caught up in that war. And so you know, Satan tempts Adam and Eve to rebel against God. They're in this garden of grace. There's only one law, and that's to, to eat, not to eat of one single tree. And that's the one he gets them to partake in because now it expands their horizon of good and evil. And they are caught up in that, and so are we. And so this war brought sin and sorrow and death into the realm of humanity. So when you go to the book of Psalms, in Psalm 90, it says that if you've lived to be 70 years old or eight up to 80, you have been blessed, right? You are on borrowed time after that. But yet one of the things, aspects of suffering that we deal with is when somebody dies. Well, why did my sister die at age 20? And and why did this person die at this age? And why did this person die? And why did my family member that I pray for die at this age? And it doesn't seem fair. And I don't like the suffering. And, and why couldn't they live to be 90? And, and, and so we demand God's explanation as to why I have an expiration date of a certain age, but God cannot explain himself. And here's why. Because God is an infinite being. We are finite beings. God's wisdom is infinite, which means it's outside of time, space, and matter. That's why God is the creator of time, space, and matter. If you're going to be the creator of time, space, and matter, you have to be outside of time, space, and matter. God's wisdom is so much wiser than ours and so much more complex. It, our little finite minds could not even begin to conceive as God is explaining how one thing affects another and how not, oh, something else affects another thing and how all of this is unfolding. But I can assure you, according to the Word of God, it is all heading towards a very distinct end. Secondly, God does not view death like us. Death, when I die, when this physical body ceases to function, you may mourn my loss. Because we have a relationship, right? We have what has happened. Love has been exchanged in this relationship. That's why you can pick up a newspaper and read obituaries, and you can empathize for families who's lost a loved one, but you're not going to feel any real heart-gripping pain. But if it's a child, if it's a relative, if it's a close friend, you do, because love has been exchanged. Relationship has been built. As you can mourn my loss, but listen, I will never be more alive than I was here because uh, I'm, just, I'm just exiting this world and entering into eternity. But it's something we have to deal with, right? Ultimately, Jesus, the Bible says, is going to come back a second time, and he's going to take all of hell and all that it brought to this earth, and he's going to push it down into the abyss. And Jesus will set up his, his, his millennial kingdom for a thousand years, 
And at the end of that thousand years, and during that time, there's, you know, there's like the lion lays down with the lamb and he's restored everything and all the hellish stuff that happened as a result of the war and the fall is pushed down into the abyss. At the end of that time, he unleashes Satan for a brief moment of time in, in order, and he's going to rage war again. And, and at that time, Jesus pushes hell and everything in its existence into the valley of Gehenna, which is called hell, uh, the ultimate hell, the, the final resting place for Satan and all of his demonic beings and everything that they brought to this world. And God's going to destroy or... Re- I say destroy, I don't mean he's like going to explode the planet. He's going to renovate this world, right? Heaven's going to come down. He's going to renovate the planet Earth through fire. He's going to purify it. Heaven's going to come down and the holy city, the new Jerusalem that will rest upon planet Earth. And this is where we will spend all of eternity with God, where there's no more sin, no more sorrow, no more death, and not even the inkling of it ever happening again, right? So this is where it's all going. Now, here's the second thing in broad perspective. Everything God creates, Satan counterfeits, right? Satan does, does not create anyone or anything. He is a created finite being. He is not God. So all he can do is counterfeit, corrupt, and co-op what God has already created. So as you and I are living life, we have to keep asking the question, is this created by God or is this counterfeited by Satan? For example, God creates angels, Satan counterfeits with demons. God creates obedience, Satan counterfeits with rebellion. God creates truth, Satan counterfeits with lies. God wants you to be spirit-filled, uh, Satan counterfeits with demonic possession or being, as the Bible calls it, demonized. God creates peace, the counterfeit of that by Satan is what? Fear. God creates unity. He counterfeits it with division. And what we're going to look at today, God wants you to live in freedom. Satan wants you to live in slavery. And so whatever God creates, he counterfeits that. And it comes down to the issue, as Paul's going to say, either you are living by the spirit or you're living by the flesh, one or the other. You're either living by truth or you're living by lie. You're either living in freedom or you're living in slavery. You're either living a life of obedience or you're living a life of rebellion. And so there's a direct contrast between how we live our lives. And watch this, the consequences are also completely different. As opposed to walking in the Spirit, developing the character of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, as opposed to walking in the flesh and developing the attributes of the flesh, the consequences are divergently different in our lives. One leads to slavery, one leads to freedom. And so Satan's demonic counterpart is to operate in our lives through the flesh. Here's the third broad perspective, heaven down or hell up. Heaven down or hell up. You and I are in the place between the times. Now, God has already won the war in heaven. And so Satan is demonic and evil forces are at work in the world wanting our allegiance, wanting our rebellion against God and one another. And ultimately, when Jesus comes, again, he's going to push that culture into hell. But you need to understand that hell has a culture and heaven has a culture, right? So the culture of heaven, again, is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness. The culture of hell is hatred, discord, unforgiveness, bitterness, addiction, self-righteousness, So every moment of every day, I must choose which culture 
I'm going to live in. I'm either going to bring hell up, the culture of hell into my life, or I'm going to bring heaven down, the culture of heaven in my life. That is a choice that you have to make because God created you out of love and gave you the ability and the freedom to choose. And God wants us to obviously live with heaven coming down, right? That's why Jesus taught us to pray, thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So in Galatians chapter 5, there's this war in heaven that's come to the church, and um, this happens, you know, in church families, in families at large, and in relationships. And so God's trying to do a work in our lives. Satan's trying to do a work in our lives. We got to decide, are we going to live our lives hell up or heaven down? And so there is a choice, and there is a way that you can live heaven down rather than hell up. So let's look in chapter 5 of Galatians, beginning in verse 13. You, my brothers, were called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Some of your translations will say the flesh. Rather, serve one another in love. The entire law is summed up in one single commandment. Love your neighbor as yourself. If you keep on biting and devouring each other, watch out or you will be destroyed by each other. We tend to think of, of re- rebellion as, as hell up. But in the book of Galatians, okay, so Paul's um, dealing with two warring factions that are going on inside the church. And so I'm going to call this re- the religious and the rebellious for a moment. And so, um, you know, you had those who became followers of Jesus. You had those who came along called Judaizers, and they said, hey, uh, it's great that you received Jesus in your heart and life, wonderful thing. But you have to continue following the law of Moses if that's going to be, a, you know, a done thing, right? So you got to get circumcised, and you, you got to follow the dietary laws. And so Paul was saying to those in Galatia who were starting, like, you know, I guess we need to do that. He said, why are you going back to the, way, to the law? He says, Christ came to set you free from the law. Uh, and so when we think in terms of rebellion and religious, there was this controversy between these two factions in the church, and they're arguing, they're fighting, they're questioning about whether. So the question is, which one of these two are counterfeit? If I were to ask you, the religious and the rebellious, which one of them were counterfeit? Well, actually, both of them are, because religion is all about rule keeping, right? I'm going to earn God's love and favor by keeping the rules, and so I list the rules and. And maybe you have, uh, like, you add rules to the rules like the Pharisees used to. So we would say things like, well, we're going to keep you from sinning, so let's make a bunch of rules and extra fences that you got to jump over, at least plow through before you can get to the actual sin that we're trying to keep you from, right? So this is what Southern Baptists did for a long time. You're not allowed to dance, okay? No dancing. Why can't we dance? Because if, you, if I, we let teenagers dance, they're going to start fornicating, and we can't have that. So we got to put up extra fences, no dancing, and therefore they won't do that, right? So that, that worked real well. Um, some of you grew up, you know, you, you, just by nature, you were rule keepers, right? And some of you are more a rebellious type. Like, you're, you're, you're a rule breaker, right? Make the rule for me. It's okay. I'm going to break it anyway. Right? So all of us who are parents know that which children in your household were rule keepers and which ones were rule breakers right? You, you understand that. You knew that. And you probably know that about yourself. Whether or not you are more the religious type, you're a rule keeper or a rebellious type, and you are a rule breaker. 
And sometimes we switch. For example, uh, I have two daughters. Uh, one grew up as a rule keeper. The other was a rule breaker. Her first words out of her mouth was always when she was in trouble, she has broken a rule. What if I don't, right? Well, what if I don't? Because she wanted to know what the consequences were before she even broke the rule. Like, well, what if I don't? So um, they grew up, one rule keeper, one rule breaker. When they got, both got in college, they flipped. The rule breaker became the rule keeper, and the rule keeper became the rule breaker. And it was just a crazy thing, right? So most of us know, like if you have a child that's a rule breaker, like you're driving and you do not stop completely at that stop sign, they're going to break, break, hey, dad, you didn't stop. You didn't stop the stop sign. What, what are you doing? You can't go yet, right? So that's the rule keeper. Uh, the rebellious ones, you know, just like, hey, just plow on through it, dad. Come on, let's go. Um, so notice what he says, that we are called, he says, he's called us to freedom. And um, freedom from what? Freedom to walk in the destiny that God has for our lives. Free to walk in the will of God uh, and to become the sons and daughters of God as he's created us to be. But the flesh, or some of your translation says the sinful nature, isn't talking about your, your physical body. It's talking about your predisposition, the fallen part of your sinful nature. It's the rebellious part of you, right? It's you without God. It's, it's like uh, you before the Holy Spirit began to do a work inside of you. And so the flesh has a holy trinity, and the holy trinity is me, myself, and I, right? World's about you. It's all about you. It's always about you, and you're the center of your own, uh, your own newspaper articles, right? And he says, now, if you don't get a hold on this, you're going to bite and devour each other. That's religion, right? Religion is I criticize you, I attack you, I control you, right? So sh Satan shows up in a Christian family, a church or ministry or whatever, and so it's like, you know, there's... I, I have been in some of the worst fights of biting and devouring in, in business meetings in churches over my 40 years of time uh, than anywhere else. I mean, it's just, it's just horrendous. I, when I was a teenager and I was at First Baptist Church Heath, some of the most knockdown, drag-out fights took place in, during business meetings in a church than I'd seen anywhere else. And so this is the, kind of the, the, the difference. Now, there is another way that we can live, right? And that is through relationship. And this is what Paul wants us to do. It's like, I want you to live in relationship with Jesus. I want you to live in relationship with the Holy Spirit. The relationship with the Holy Spirit, it's not about trying harder. It's about relying more upon the Holy Spirit and his power and how he has equipped you to take, as Paul would say, take off the old and to put on the new, right? I'm taking off the works of the flesh and I'm putting on the works of the Spirit. I'm taking off the works of the flesh as he gives us in verses 19 through 21, and I'm putting on the character of Christ called the fruit of the Spirit. This is what God has empowered us to do and has given us the freedom to do through his Holy Spirit. So the question is, which way are we going to live? How are we going to do this? Listen. Any relationship that you have in life that is solid is built upon love and trust, is it not? Like if I love you, I trust you, I, I will give my life to you, I will give everything to you. So when God, 
when we were called into this relationship with Christ, he called us to, to set us free from what? From jealousy and envy and bitterness and hatred and all these things he's going to describe as works of the flesh. He, he called us into this relationship so that we can strip that stuff off of us that was once the default of our hearts, and he wants to put on something that is brand new, something that the world can benefit from, although they have no power to put it on themselves because it is the fruit of what? The Spirit, not the fruit of the flesh, the fruit of the Spirit. Only the Holy Spirit can clothe me in the righteousness of Jesus. Only he can clothe me in the love and the joy and the peace and graciousness of God. So number two is this. You have to learn to feed your deepest desires. You have to learn to feed your deepest desires. Here's what he says in verse 16. So I say, live by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the sinful nature or the flesh. For the sinful nature desires what is contrary to the Spirit, and the Spirit what is contrary to the sinful nature. They are in conflict with each other, so that you do not do what you want, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. Now, notice he says that we are to, to live by or to walk in the Spirit. I don't know about you, but, I, you know, I, I love to, my wife and I, we love to take walks, and sometimes we hold hands, sometimes we don't, depends if she's mad at me or not, but you know, we try to work things out by the end of it. But anyways, uh, so now that we have grandkids, you know, we take them somewhere, and they, you know, they're trying, they're at the age now where they're wanting to be real independent, like they don't want you to hold their hand anymore. So we may go into a restaurant and we're parked across the parking lot and I'll say, Cooper, let me have your hand because I know it's not safe for a three-year-old to go across the parking lot on his own, right? But he like, no, Papa, no, I, I do it myself. I do it myself. And so you want to hold his hand because you want to navigate him through the danger in order to get him to his destination, right, safely. Well, this is kind of what God wants to do with us in that God, we are children to God. I don't care what your age is. You're like a kid to God, and he wants to take your hand and hold it and walk with you through every season and every circumstance in your life. And we will get into desires of flesh in a minute, but how many of you, maybe you, you, you struggle with some things, like you know you struggle with some things, right? So maybe it's a it's an addiction. It's something that has a hold on you. Maybe it's a bad habit. I don't know what you struggle with, but it's something you know that, you know what, I've tried and tried, but I need victory and I need deliverance in this area of my life. And I've tried and tried, but I have not been able to find it. Well, the key here is, is having the master key. Like, so in December, I took our staff to an escape room, as I shared with you before. Um, yeah, so when they put us in a jail cell. And we had to escape out of this jail cell, but it actually went into another room that went into another room. It was kind of convoluted thing. And so, you, ha you know, you have to, you're looking for clues, finding keys through these clues. And, and um, you know, on the pad, you had to put in certain numbers to get, all right? So here's what God does not want you to do. He does not want you spending your entire life trying to figure out how to overcome the flesh. He says, I've given you the master key and the master key is the Holy Spirit. He says, if you will walk in the Spirit, live by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. So if I take the master key, which is why Jesus says, I've given you the keys to the kingdom, keys plural, a key for every hellish door, so that you can overcome these fleshly desires, 
and allow the God to take it off and so you can put on the Spirit of God and live your life in freedom from those things that have kept you in, uh, in, in bondage and in slavery. Right, so this is what God wants to do in our lives. So, and this is exactly how Jesus did it, isn't it? I mean, as you follow Jesus, um, man, as a follower of Christ, you are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You've been sealed by the Holy Spirit. You have been filled by the Holy Spirit. And if you learn how to walk in the step with the Holy Spirit, you'll learn how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit. This is what Paul's going to flesh out for us. That's how Jesus lived, right? He was filled by the Spirit. He was led by the Spirit. He was empowered by the Spirit. He lived in the presence of the Spirit. His key was he, was, he, he mastered the, the person, presence, and power of the Holy Spirit as he lived in a human body, setting aside the God card, right? So he's, ta- he's taught us, he showed us, because here's what Jesus did not do. Jesus was not religious and he wasn't rebellious. He lived in close relationship with his heavenly Father. And that's why we see all through Scripture, I only do, I only say what the Father tells me to do and what the Father tells me to say. And so he, he uh, mimicked for us what it means to live in step with the Holy Spirit. And notice, he says, there's only two ways to live, flesh or the Spirit, to keep you from what? He says, to keep you from doing what you want to do. Why? Because the natural draw and desire of the flesh is to the counterfeit. Right? Not the real, the counterfeit. So some of you, one of the reasons why you're still tied to your painful past is because in the moment of that pain, you develop lie-based thinking on the basis of that painful event, and that is lodged into your thought processes, and you've never, you, you have never renewed your mind in those thought processes, and so you came out with a conclusion, and you build personal convictions based on those lies, And what you need to do is let God get his truth in there and erase the lies and replace it with truth so that then you can be set free from that which is keeping you chained to the past. And so this is a part of the process that we have to go through. And it takes work on our part. And God's done his part. It takes work on our part. So Satan kingdom kingdom and God's kingdom, that's why if you're trying to live in both areas, right, you're miserable as a Christian. If you're trying to be a follower of Jesus and live a fleshly life, you're going to be miserable if you're truly saved. Why? Because he says it's warring against the Spirit. So here's what happens to most believers. We have the culture of the world in which we live and the culture of God's kingdom, and so we try to integrate the two. So a lot of people, believers are like, in our day and times, like, well, let's just go along and get along. Therefore, we won't cause any friction in the world. Right? Because if I really follow God's culture and his kingdom values, it's going to put me in, in direct opposition with culture values and Satan's kingdom and his values that is integrated into our society. So for example, as a pastor, if I challenge somebody on this identity issue concerning their gender, I'm called a racist. I'm called bigoted. I'm judgmental. I'm being hard-headed. I'm being narrow-minded. No, I'm just telling you what God said. I'm just saying this is what God, how God created you. Now, you may have some gender confusion going on. I do not deny that. But I'm telling you, the way that you find the uh, freedom in that is not by trying to be something that you are not, right? Or you can become an instigator, right? 
These are the ones who are the crusaders, right? We're going to go out and picket everybody and tell everybody they're going to hell and, and, and rail against whatever sin it is that we're railing against. Or some people become isolators, right? You just kind of withdraw from society, withdraw from culture, kind of like the Amish. You just kind of withdraw so that, you know, you, you're not contaminated by the culture around you. Listen, we as God's people were never called to reflect our culture. We have been called and commissioned to transform our culture. And the transformation process comes through the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's why it's the most powerful entity in the world, because it's the gospel of Christ that takes a dead spirit, a heart that is filled with evil intentions and fleshly desires, and begins the transformation process from the inside out, breathes life into me as it breathes the Holy Spirit in me, as it breathes the resurrection power of Christ in me in order to take off the old and to put on the new so that my life is radically different than it was before. This is what God's after in our lives, right? So, and he goes on to say, but if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under the law. So here's what, here's the next kind of fill in the blank. Identity opens up your destiny in Christ. Identity open up, opens up your destiny in Christ. If I were to ask you, what is one word that would describe you? Most of you, many people, Christians especially, will say, well, I'm just a sinner. Well, you know, that may be what you used to be. You ain't that anymore. Not according to God. Why would you, make, why would you keep that label on yourself? There are 300 times in which the word sinner is used in the New Testament. And out of that 300 times, it's in reference to those outside of the kingdom of God, not inside the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. And on three occasions, there's, there's only, it could be a reference to those who are born again believers, although it is very questionable. I'm just trying to simply get you to see this, is that God changed your destiny because he transferred you out of the kingdom of darkness and its culture of values into the kingdom of God's beloved son, into that culture of values. And those two cultures of values are divergently different. God calls you a saint. Every church that Paul addresses, he addresses it to what? The saints of God. Even the church of Corinth, which was acting anything than like saintly people. And so God has given you a, a new destiny uh, because Paul uses his favorite phrase, you are in Christ. And once God changes the nature, this is why, so how, here's a question people ask me all the time. So how do you know if you're really a Christian or not? How do you really know? Well, just ask yourself, what are your deepest, strongest desires? I have people say to me all the time, yeah, you, you Christians, I don't, I don't get it, man. I don't understand why you guys want to you know, ruin your Sunday morning, go to church and read Bible and, and pray and do all those things. I, I don't understand why you guys do that stuff. And you know what? I didn't either, what, pre-Jesus. I, 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 didn't, I had no desire for those things. Didn't understand why people did those things, why you would waste your time in such a manner until Jesus got a hold of my life and radically changed my heart. And then all of a sudden, I didn't have to. I wanted to. I want to go to church. I want to spend time with God's people. I want to read the Bible. I want to pray. I want to walk in the Holy Spirit's power, empowerment. I want to have words of wisdom and prophecy to share with people as Spirit gives me uh, those utterances 
to share with others. Listen, it's not a have to, it is a want to. Why? Because God radically changed my desires. So if your desires are still just riveted into the things of the flesh, you're probably not a believer. You may think you are, but you have no evidence because you have no palate for the things of God. Who gives me a palate for the things of God? It was the Spirit of God who invaded my life and my body became his temple just like you. So I don't have to, I want to, I desire to. And so here's the desires of the flesh, he says. Verse 19, the acts of the sinful nature were obvious, sexual immorality, impurity, debauchery, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, discord, jealousy, fits of rage, selfish ambition, dissensions, factions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like. That's the uh, catch-all drawer. In case you, in case you said, read that list and said, well, I don't have any problem with those things. And Paul just says, well, there's a lot of other things. I just put that in a miscellaneous drawer. Trust me, you got it, right? As I did before, those who like are like this will not inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, he's saying that those who whose desires are for these things and have no desire, no palate for the things of God, that's because they've never inherited the kingdom of God through Jesus. He says Jesus came, comes into our life and he radically begins to change that. So you'll notice that the desires of the flesh are in three categories sexual sins, spiritual sins, and social sins. Now, I wish I had time to go through all of them, but I don't for the sake of time. Uh, but you, you can get, you know, the sexual things. I mean, think about this. How much pain has been created in the heart of humanity because of sexual sins? A lot. A lot. Talk to any rape victim. Trust me. When you are sinned against sexually, it's the deepest sin and the most difficult sin to overcome in life. Think about human, you know, trafficking and all, I mean, it just goes on and on. Spiritual sins like idolatry. I mean, idolatry is anyone or anything that becomes the gravitational center of your life, right? That's whatever's the center of your life, what you love the most, what you devote yourself to the most has become your idol. It can be your kids. It can be golf. Please don't say it so, Lord. Uh, It can be a lot of things. God designed us, remember, spirit, soul, body, spirit, the Holy Spirit. Jesus is to be at the center. Everything flows out of that relationship if you are operating according to God's kingdom laws. And so idolatry is something we all deal with, battle with, sorcery, witchcraft. These can be all kind of demonic things, social sins. I mean, the flesh is always trying to ruin relationships. What better way for Satan to get his digs into people's lives and destroy their relationships than through the the sins of the flesh, enmity and hatred and unforgiveness? You know that hell has a culture of unforgiveness. Heaven has the culture of forgiveness. There is no forgiveness in hell. There's only forgiveness in heaven. And watch this. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 18, if you refuse to forgive someone as a follower of Jesus, he will turn you over to the tormentor. Who's the tormentor? Satan and his demonic beings, right? If you give yourself over to the flesh, he's gonna have a heyday in your life. 
That is not what God wants for you. That's not the freedom that he saved you for. But if, if you insist on having your own way, you've just immersed yourself into the culture of hell, and hell has no forgiveness. What about things like jealousy and envy, fits of rage? Like you're like a grenade with the pin pulled. Yeah, it just takes a little bit and it pushes you over the edge. And, and now people don't even want to take responsibility for their anger anymore. Their fits of rage, they say, well, you know, it's just my personality. I took a personality test at work and it came out J-E-R-K. And so I don't have an anger issue. <clears throat> Selfish ambition, dissension, all of these things. Drunkenness, which is any kind of addiction that you may have. And so... Um, and he says, and, and the like, right? And the like. I'll just, I'll just throw everything in there. And so here's what I want you to see is this, that the deeds of the flesh is the bait of Satan that he dangles in front of you. But once you take the bait, there's always a hook. And once he's hooked you, he reels you in for personal destruction. How many Christians are falling in our day and time because of the sexual bait? John Chris, one of the great comedians in our Christian world, had, had hidden his problem uh, for, for many years, but now he took the bait and Satan hooked him, and, and now it's just like destroyed his, his ministry and his life. How many uh, pastors have fallen, especially in the past couple of years, very high name, you know, big name pastors with big mega churches, but they took the bait. Satan hooked them, and then all of a sudden now there is, there is destruction. He just kind of reels you in. And so if you think it can't happen to you, it can. So here's the desires of the Spirit. The character of Christ, and you can read these for yourself. It's love, like God's love for us, right? Agape love, joy. You know, God, you love me, and I'm walking in your will, and your grace is sufficient, and peace. Lord, thank you that where I'm going I know where I'm going when I die, and I have the peace of God in me and around me and surrounding me because I'm at peace with you and patience. God, your timing, not my timing, kindness, being considerate, not rude, nice, goodness, generosity, right? You're, uh, you're just being generous, and, and you're a person who gives encouragement and love and affection, faithfulness, dependable, you're trustworthy, you're reliable, gentleness, you're not domineering or overbearing. Self-control is, is counterfeited by those who are out of control. So you see what God's saying here? He's saying, listen, you, you can either live your life, hell up, or heaven down. The choice is yours. Because God gave you freedom to choose, he cannot make you do what you do not want to do. All Paul's warning us is this, the natural bent of our heart is to go hell up, not heaven down. But God has given us this new empowerment called the Holy Spirit who enables us to live heaven down rather than hell up. And we'll leave it there and pick that up next week on that aspect of it. But let me just give you three closing lessons from Jesus. And this will help you in your own personal suffering. Number one, your suffering does not indicate a lack of love for God, of God for your life. Jesus suffered. Paul suffered. The writer of this book, many people suffered in Scripture. And it wasn't because God was withholding love or did not love. God allowed suffering in spite of his love. 
because God was doing another work. And here's the second lesson. Being crushed results in fruit. When Jesus gave his discourse in John 15 about being the vine and the branches and fruit, uh, here's what he said. He was about to be betrayed. He was about to be um, flogged and crucified. In other words, God was about to crush him on the cross, but in the crushing of Christ, it develops what? When you crush a grape, it changes its form, but it can make sweet wine. I know some of you are thinking, oh, come pastor, we can't can't drink wine, we're Baptists. Hogwash, wine is always indication of God's blessing in the Bible, all right? I'm not not talking about getting drunk. The Bible does forbid that. We're not going to get into that. Here's what I wanted to say, though. I'm not a wine drinker, okay? hate the stuff. I just don't like the taste, right? So um, here's what God's saying is that when you undergo a crushing in life and you're suffering and you lose your song and you're in that mode of, I'm about to give it up, what God says is, Start singing your song again. Because in the crushing, I'm going to make new wine. That's why the Bible says in the New Testament that the church is the new wineskin. God's going to do something out of that crushing that's going to be absolutely amazing if you will stay with him. And number three, your suffering does not end in death. Your suffering ends in resurrection. So, The big idea is this, the God who embraced suffering himself, he longs to embrace you. Pull off the deeds of the flesh, to put on the character of Christ, to live in freedom, to live in freedom, the freedom bought for, paid by the Lord Jesus Christ, and empowered now with a supernatural power called the Holy Spirit. Father, we thank you and love you and are so um, enamored by you. We thank you for your supernatural favor and grace. Your word declares that we are the resurrection and the life. We are the resurrection and the life because Jesus was the resurrection and the life, and therefore we declare that we receive and we walk in newness of life. Your word says that if any person is in Christ, they are a new creation. The old has passed away, and all things have become new. And so we declare this morning that we walk in the new. We declare that our old thought patterns, our frames of mind, our relationships and behaviors are dead. They're dead to us now. We take off the grave clothes associated with the old man and we put on the garments of our resurrection, the garments of Christ. We declare that in every, in every incriminating thought, suggestion or imagination that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, that it is cast down in the name of Jesus. We declare that we think differently. We embrace a new spiritual paradigm in our lives. We are not the same anymore. We are new creations. We're born of the Spirit from the living God. And so we declare that, again, the old has been done away and the new has come into manifestation. In the name of Jesus, in the power of the Holy Spirit, we have declared ourselves to be victorious as we rest in the victory of Jesus. Now, if you're here this morning and you've never placed your faith and trust in Jesus, 
The Bible says that you are spiritually dead. You have no power source outside of yourself that would enable you to pull off the flesh and to put on the fruit of the Spirit. You might make some cosmetic changes in your life, but there will be no dramatic change until there is a change in your palate, your desires, and only the Spirit of God can do that. Jesus came and was crushed on your behalf, strung out on a cross, absorbed and drank the cup of God's wrath, was put in a tomb, but was resurrected three days later to defeat sin and death and sorrow and all those things that we suffer, we just grapple with in this life. And so all that hurt and pain that you're carrying inside of you can be healed. God came to heal the soul. But it starts with Jesus. But you have freedom to choose. If you've never embraced Christ to be Savior and Lord of your life, I encourage you today. Say, Greg, this is what I want. This is the desire of my heart. We're going to sing in a moment, and I'm here at the front. I'll be here after we're done singing. I'd love to talk to you about having a relationship with Jesus. Some of you are, you're like Lazarus when he came out of the tomb, and you still got your grave clothes on. You're still tied to the past because of hurt, pain, and suffering. What did Jesus say to them? Take off his grave clothes. God wants to take off your grave clothes. Stop living. Stop tying yourself to the past. You don't have to live there anymore. God's got more power than that. He's got enough power to raise Jesus from the dead. He's got enough power to heal your hurting soul. So come to him. Lament, lay it out, yell, scream, do whatever you want. But ask the Holy Spirit to give you a new song. A new song that will draw your heart back to the Father. And let him bring healing there. Let him embrace you all over again. And soothe your wounded soul. Father, we thank you for what you're doing in the hearts and lives of your people. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together and sing.